93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about Automatic for the People, one of the great albums of the 90s. I think one of the great albums of the last 25 years. This album turned 25 last week and uh, I wanted to talk about it and fortunately... I was able to call up my friend, Brian Koppelman. And uh, Brian, uh, you may know him. He is uh, one of the executive producers and creators of the show Billions on Showtime, a show that I am addicted to. I would recommend checking out. It's a very addictive show. Brian also uh, is one of the co-writers of Rounders, the classic gambling movie from the late 90s with Matt Damon and Edward Norton. I think he also co-wrote Ocean's 13. Most importantly, Brian is a big music fan, and he loves R.E.M., and he's been listening to R.E.M. for a long time. I knew I wanted to do an episode about Automatic for the People, and Brian was the first guy to come to mind because I knew that he'd have passionate opinions about this record. And he's been on the podcast before. Uh, He is a friend of the podcast, and we've argued on this podcast (laughs) about various musical things. We've also argued on Twitter. Um, Not a lot of arguing in this episode because we're essentially on the same page about Automatic for the People being, uh, it's his favorite REM record and it's my favorite. And we go into why we, why we think it's the best REM record in the episode. And we also talk about, you know, just the, the, the place of this record in this band in the history of rock music and the importance of REM in music history. And, you know, it, it's important for me to talk about this because I feel like REM has become criminally, criminally underrated, criminally underappreciated, and dismissed by people who do not know what the hell they are talking about. <laughs> I, you know, I talk to people about music all the time, you know, on social media or, you know, just in conversation. And I find that when you talk about REM with people who were maybe born in the 90s or the late 80s, uh, that they really have no idea like what this band was in their prime. You know, like when I, when I discovered REM, uh, in the late 80s, like when I was you know, 10 or 11 years old and, and just starting to get into music, just starting to kind of learn about music history, R.E.M. was the band. They were the most respected band on the planet. You know, they were just starting to become commercially successful. But if you talk to music snobs about, okay, these are the bands that you have to listen to. These are the bands that you have to know about. R.E.M. was always among those bands, if not at the top of the list. It wasn't the Smiths. It wasn't the Pixies. It wasn't even Sonic Youth. It was R.E.M. And what I found over time is that when we look back now on the 80s and 90s, that we talk a lot more about the Smiths. We talk a lot more about the Pixies. We talk a lot about, more about Sonic Youth. Or even like Echo and the Bunnymen. <laughs> Like all the post-punk groups like of the early 80s. We talk about those bands. And R.E.M. kind of gets put on the wayside. You know, R.E.M. is looked at as this sort of cheesy band. I've heard people compare them to Billy Joel and Phil Collins, people of that ilk. And by the way, I love Phil, Billy Joel and Phil Collins. I'm not knocking them. But, you know, those are artists that exist in the context of adult contemporary radio, like an older kind of artist. And that's how R.E.M. is regarded. And I can't really blame those people because that is, you know, if you're going to hear Losing My Religion on the radio now, or you're going to see it on a Spotify playlist, it's going to be in the context of, of some of those older 80s people. 
you know, not the cool 80s people, but the, the less hip, more mainstream 80s people. That's how we've contextualized R.E.M. And it is wrong. <laughs> it is wrong. This is a great band. This is a cool band. This is an important band. And if you're one of those people that just dismisses them because you saw the video for Shiny Happy People once, or because you think Everybody Hurts is kind of a corny song, educate yourself. You're not being cool. You're being ignorant. This is a great band. Automatic for the People is a great record. I feel like I am literally wagging my finger right now as I'm talking about this. Like if there were, if there, I feel like I need like a child in front of me or, or when I say child, I mean someone who's like 25 or whatever, who I can wag my finger at as I get indignant. Someone who I can literally tell to get off my lawn. I feel like the more I, I sort of lecture about this, like the less persuasive I am. You know, like if there are younger people listening to me right now, they're probably seriously rolling their eyes if they haven't already shut this podcast off. But I feel passionate about this and we get into it in the episode and we make a case. And hopefully, you know, if you don't know much about REM, you'll be inspired to listen and maybe you'll, you'll change your mind. And if you love the band, you know, this will be a fun celebration of, of uh, one of the great American bands of all time. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week and it is our friends at Harry's. And I just want to say that I love this product. I love using Harry's because I have a beard um, but, you know, you have to shave around the beard if you have a beard. You have to frame it. That's what I use razors for. I, I have to shave almost every day. And as someone who does shave every day, I hate buying razors. It can be a real pain in the neck. So Harry's has been a real godsend because it's a good product. doesn't cost a lot of money. And this special offer that I have for Celebration Rock listeners, this is a free trial offer from Harry's. It's a $13 value for free when you shine up. You just have to cover shipping. Now, with your free trial set, you get the ergonomic razor handle. You get the five precision engineered blades. You get the rich lathering shave gel and you get the travel blade cover. Now I don't really know what the travel blade cover is, but it sounds cool and you get it for free. So you might as well take it. Now, what do you have to do to get all this stuff? Well, all you have to do is go to harrys.com backslash rock. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock to get your free trial set. Again, it's a $13 value. You're getting it for goose egg. So again, just go to harrys.com backslash rock. Okay, so Brian Koppelman and I, we talk about Automatic for the People. And then after this, uh, me and my producer, Derek, we talked a little bit about REM's legacy. And, and we sort of ruminate on like where REM is at in rock history and, and, and what can maybe be done to rectify it. So lots of REM talk in this episode. But let's start with me and Brian delving deep into Automatic for the People. So Brian... Thank you again for coming on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy. You just started shooting season three of Billions. Hey, man, it's my, you know, it's, first of all, it's, it's my absolute pleasure to talk to you anytime. We've known each other a while, and you know I love talking about music with you um, and talking about R.E.M. and, in particular, this album uh, is something I do all the time anyway, <laughs> and so uh, it's it's just great to do it, and, and I'm happy to, to be here. Well, and I don't know I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I This podcast has been in the works for a while now. I actually emailed you about this, I want to say, like four or five months ago. Like, I knew the anniversary of Automatic for the People would be coming up, and I was actually, I was on my deck drinking Old Fashions, listening to Automatic for the People, and I was, I was kind of drunk. And I'm like, I'm going to email Brian right now and be like, <laughs> I want to talk about Automatic for the People with you. 
<laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that that my my drunken uh, dream came true. Uh, I think as right soon now. as you wrote, as soon as you, I, 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 I'm pretty sure I wrote you back, uh, like within six minutes, like within <laughs> of when you wrote it, like the second I saw the email, I was like, fuck yeah, talk to, talk to Stephen <laughs> about uh, about you know what I think is one of the greatest albums ever made by my favorite band of all time. Yeah, what could be better? Okay, well let's let's start with that. This is your favorite REM record. It's also my favorite REM record. And you know, REM fans argue all the time about what the about what their favorite record is. What makes Automatic for the People number one for you? Yeah, you know, I, I think first of all, I think it's the objective. I think you and I had a conversation on, on this very podcast about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, about Zeppelin Four and how how Zepp fans me included, try to say Zep 4 is not the best one, or that they have another that's their favorite. But I think that even though there are times, perhaps, that Life's Rich Pageant is a favorite, or Reckoning is a favorite, I, I just think there's no doubt that the the songwriting, production, singing, and playing on Automatic for the People is uh, just by a fa- some kind of factor um, just better than all the other records. It's the deepest record in many ways, the most consistently deep record. And one of the things about, I think, old-time R.E.M. fans, R.E.M. fans who came up listening to Chronic Town and the first, you know, the three albums that followed, is that the, the beauty of the, the melodic and chordal beauty um, is something that brought us into the band's world. And, you know, if you, if you think about from the earliest times, if you think about, talk about the passion and laughing, and then um, if you go to the, the, the next record and you think about South Central Rain and Rockville, and then um, if, you know, you go to the next record and basically the whole album and... Uh, up till you know, Life's Rich Pageant, it it was these songs with the, this bittersweet melodic structure, and Stipe's voice uh, uh, atop it, singing uh, mournful uh, mournful melodies, and th- and then you know they made these great rock albums. I love those great rock albums. I particularly love Life's Rich Pageant and Green and uh, and Out of Time. But then on on Automatic for the People it kind of all comes together, right? You have, you know, they've never written a more beautiful song than Night Swimming. Right. On the other hand, Sidewinder uh, totally rocks, as does Monty and Nick Norland. And it's Good Man on the Moon is all of it together. And so, I, I, for me, um, it's an album that is just clearly the apex of what those four fellas uh, did together. Yeah, I, do you see it differently? No, I don't. I I, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Though, like when you came into the band, because like for me, I'm I'm a little younger than you are. So like I didn't know about REM until Document. Like I was 10 years old when that came out, and that's sure. when they really became an MTV band with the one I love and it's the end of the world. Like, were you there from Murmur on? So I found the band um, on uh, on the the third uh on the third album and um so what happened was i was at i was at college and 
um, a buddy of mine, I had been a heavy metal fan, though I liked songwriting too. And I was going through a rough sophomore year, and a buddy said, I want you to get this album called Murmur by R.E.M., it was a, you know, which was the first record after Chronic Town, the first full album. And he was just put it on uh, when you're doing other stuff around your room at college and just let the album kind of work on you and seep in. I was like, what do you mean? His name was uh, Ari. I was like, what do you mean, Ari? He said, I, I, I sit down and I, at that time, you know, I, I would take an album out and it was a sacred thing for me, as I'm sure it was for you. And you were out, you know, had, uh, wasn't, wouldn't read. I wouldn't do anything else. I would just sit down and listen to a record. He's like, don't do that. Just let this album happen to you. And after a couple of days of doing that, exactly what he said happened. And immediately Murmur just became my favorite album ever made. And it was so great because then I could go back and get Chronic Town, but by then, Fables had come out. It had just come out. So then I got Reckoning, Reckoning and, and Fables. And so the, the, those three albums in Chronic Town became basically what I listened to. I often say that um, R.E.M., I had two albums. Uh, I had two cassettes my sophomore year of college that were just in this ice cold. I had a Jeep CJ7. I was in Boston. The uh, One of the windows was broken, so it was always freezing in the car. And the only cassettes I had somehow in that car were Fables and Bruce's Nebraska. Mm. And I listened to them basically in the freezing Boston winter of 1985. Wow. And um, that is what really got me into it. So then when Life's Rich Pageant came out, that's the first one that I bought the day that it came out. Okay. And that, um, you know, was like, holy shit, this band's releasing <laughs> a new album. And then every other R.E.M. album I bought, the, you know, the day it came out, and then because I went into the music business, I started getting them early. I would start this moment I heard tell that there'd be an RM album. I would do anything I could to get the record before it came out. Yeah, see, the reason I was curious about that is that, I, you know, REM is definitely one of those bands that, you know, there's people that love everything, and then there's people that love maybe certain periods of the band. And it seems like a lot of times people that maybe got into the band with Murmur start to drop off once they got signed to Warner Brothers and they became a more successful band. And I know for me, like I said, I, I came into them right around the time they made that transition with Document and Green. Yeah. And for me, like as a kid, they were sort of like, oh, this is like my Beatles. Like every album was different. Every album felt important. And yeah. Automatic for the People was sort of like the, uh, you know, like the masterpiece. You know, like this, it, like you said, you know, your your experience went back farther than I did, but even in my own kind of limited experience, it did seem like a culmination, not just for them, but sort of like for music at that time. Like this, it just seemed so deep and so simple and yet complex at the time. But I know that there's REM fans who kind of drop off before that and maybe well, even that guy, Murmur uh, Ari, who turned me on to the band, Nev, for him, when Peter Buck moved away from those, uh, arpeggiated expressions of those of chords which you know the first couple albums were defined by that picking arpeggiated style when he went away from that he he was done and um i wasn't you know right through uh monster i was so in and even new adventures which is my least favorite of all, all the albums up to new adventures it's still inarguably uh, a, a great album, and I can make an argument that accelerates a great album too. Oh yeah. But um, but look, you know, when you talk about automatic for the people, you really have to spend a lot of time talking about Mike Mills because it's very clearly 
an album driven by Mike Mills's musical vision. Um, you feel in the piano playing, in the melodic structure. You know, you and I were just tweeting at each other about Mike's pop song because I thought that you'd started by tweeting at me. In fact, you hadn't. <laughs> um, someone else named Stephen with an H at the end tweeted me about it, which was odd. An imposter. But this, but this is coming out as part of um, the deluxe edition, right? right? And when you hear that song, it's obviously a Mike Mills song. He's singing it. And, and, and South Central Rain was a Mike Mills song, right? Um, and Rockville's a Mike Mills song. And uh, this album, Night Swimming, is clearly Mike Mills sat down at a piano and came up with this progression, and Michael Stipe started singing. And I do feel that throughout, like Drive feels like a Peter Buck song, but most of these feel like the initial impulse came from Mills whose melodic sense is is almost uh, unparalleled in, in modern rock, I think. Yeah, you know, it's funny, because like, you mentioned this tweet, and I, I hadn't heard Mike's pop song when you tweeted at me about it, but I, I've since listened to it, and what really struck me about that song was that it reminded me of like a mid-'80s R.E.M. Yeah. song. And to me, what that, what that says about R.E.M. in the early 90s is that they, could, that they were still capable of making a life search pageant or uh, a reckoning, if they had wanted to make a record like that, they they could have bashed yeah, it out. Yeah, feels the most like reckoning. That's what I think. I, I yeah. mean, I, I, they could have bashed out songs like that, but they made a conscious choice to move in a different direction. You know, that they wanted to make a different kind of record. And what I think is fascinating about Automatic for the People, when you read about the making of it, is that they they went into it wanting to make an upbeat rock record, a record that I guess would have maybe been more in the vein of. Monster, which they made after Automatic for the People. And they ended up, the songs that they were writing just were not working that way. They, they, I think they wrote maybe like a half dozen rock songs, but the songs that they were writing were much slower. You know, there, there was more organ. Um, you know, they weren't touring at this well, time. Well, I think we have to talk about death a little bit. And, right. and the fact that this is an album about loss, uh, largely, right? I mean... It's an album about dealing with and processing loss, uh, the end, finally, of childhood, adolescence, being an adult and having to say goodbye to nights swimming with your friends, having to accept what, you know, what happens when you lose people that you love, what happens when you act in ways that have consequences. And try not to breathe, and sweetness follows, and everybody hurts. And Night Swimming and Man on the Moon, I think, are songs obsessed with moments that you can't get back, with time's passage. I mean, you are the everything. The great thing about R.E.M. is that there's such a unity, although you're right that they made different albums that were quite different, there is still, though, such a, a thematic unity. And you can feel Michael Stipe grappling with ideas of his place in the world, of our place in the world, like, the whole time. And I hear a song like You Are the Everything, uh, which was, you know, what, two albums before Automatic for the People, and I can draw a straight line from it to those songs I just mentioned right? Um, about the impermanence of our like corporeal self and how we fit in to the world of nature and 
Um, and I think running through all this, this question about what it means to be decent somehow and to be empathetic and like what the cost of being empathetic is versus the rewards of that. Yeah, you, you mentioned Mike Mills being a pivotal part, and I totally agree. I mean, Peter Buck was also a pivotal part, but for me, like, this is such a Michael Stipe record for me, just because, especially if you listen to the previous R.E.M. records, you know, he the story of those first eight records is Michael Stipe sort of slowly coming out of the murk and making clearer and more profound statements. Like, the early R.E.M. records are sort of famously you know, hard to decipher. You don't really know where he's coming from. And then you sure. get to a record like Green, which is a very sort of explicitly political record. And, but for me, like uh, Automatic for the People, and I think also New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which is, you, you said that you weren't a huge fan of that. That's like one of my favorite records. I think that's a great record. But like Automatic for the People, um, there's so many profound songs on that record about all those, th- all those topics you were just talking about, you know, death, uh, sort of maturity, adulthood, the idea you know, of loss, of grappling with that. You know, th- there's a lot of songs in there about celebrity as well and, and, and famous people that have died. You know, obviously, Man on the Moon being about Andy Kaufman. There's the song, Monty Got a Raw Deal, about Montgomery Clift. Um, it's just such a moving album in that regard. And I think especially the last three songs, to me, is like the peak of R.E.M.'s career. Like, the, I can't think of an album that ends better than Automatic for the People, unless you want to say like Abbey Road or something, you know, like you kind of have to go that high. But the Man on the Moon to Night Swimming to Find the River, um, that it's just incredible. blows me away every time I listen to it. I agree. You know, um, Out of Time is pretty close, actually. Texarkana, Country Feedback, Me and Honey. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty amazing last three songs also. Um, but I... I, I I do agree that it's stunning the way that they end the record. And look, it's always about Michael Stipe for me. Michael Stipe is the, you know, other than Bob Dylan is, for me, you know, like uh, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, and Stipe are the three that probably mean the most to me. And Stipe, because he was closer to my age, and I came to his music when I was 19 years old, and, you know, he was probably 24, 25, or something like that. It, It... he felt like an older brother telling me that it was maybe going to be okay when I was in my lowest periods. Right. And he could do that in a way that wasn't explicit. Although I guess on this record, you have a song like everybody hurts, which is Michael Stipe writing at his most direct, you know, like this is the guy who's sort of known for elliptical statements that you, yes. you know, but that song and what is oh, the sweetness follows and try not to breathe and night swimming hit me harder. Right. Well, uh, let's talk about Everybody Hurts for a minute, because that is probably the most famous song on the record. And, sure. it is, and it is a polarizing song. It is a song that I think for a lot of people now seems corny or, you know, it's an easy song to make fun of. What, how, what's your feeling on that song now that it's sort of kind of gone into the culture? It's not just on the record. It kind of has a... Well, it's really easy to dismiss that song uh, until the moment you put it on and start listening to it. <laughs> right. That's what I'd say. Right. Um, look, it's... It's one of those weird things where if the band's your favorite band, that's never going to be your favorite song of theirs um, because it's so direct. But he sings it so beautifully and the melody's so great that um, I don't skip it. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, I'll skip New Orleans instrumental sometimes, but I'll, I'll never skip Everybody Hurts. Did you notice that New Orleans instrumental is in Baby Driver? I didn't. Yeah. Because... It's- uh, 
it's possible that I didn't stay in the movie theater for the entire film. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. It's po- I'm just saying that's possible. Okay. Well, if you ever see it on television, like towards the middle of the movie, there, it's like kind of in the background of one scene. So, like, if you could, I would have recognized it, yeah. but it's possible that I didn't. Uh, well, now, he, I have to ask you a question. Yeah. Because people, I remember when the album first came out, people saying that the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight was about, like, some kind of a date rape scenario. And Do you remember this? No. About this? No, I never heard that story. People used to say it, and I, I've for years been trying to figure it out because it's the one song that's the hardest. I have no idea what that song's about. Do yeah. you? No, I don't know what that song... I mean, to me, the, the conversation about the lyrics that I remember from that time is that there were speculation that Michael Stipe was HIV positive because of this record because he sang so convincingly about death. People thought that he might have been sick. Well, sure, but the Sidewinder Sleep Tonight's got that line, call me and try to wake her up, which people misunderstand. I know people misunderstand oh. that line. So, but I've, I've never been able to... I just read the lyrics again today um, because I, I've always heard this. And so if anyone's listening and they have a, a take on what Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight is about, please uh, tweet at us because I'm really... It's the one song on this record that I, I love it. I sing along to it and... Um, I know the record it's referencing, but I have no idea what it's, uh, I have no idea what that song's about. See, I mean, this is one of the things, I guess, that you have to remind people of who didn't grow up in an internet, internet age, that you could have these sort of controversies with a record and you couldn't just go to social media and ask people about it, that it would just remain a mystery forever. Like, because again, like, I, I remember, like, with R.E.M., you know, I, I made the analogy to the Beatles earlier, and they really did seem Beatles-like at this time because they, they weren't touring. They put out Out of Time, which was a huge record, and then they just went right back into the studio and started working on Automatic for the People. And there was this sort of sense that, like, you know, these guys are just sequestering themselves and making masterpieces, you know, like, like, like the Beatles did when they made Sgt. Yeah. Pepper. And, and, and there was a mystery about them, and, and that did sort of fuel the speculation that Michael Stipe wasn't healthy at the time that he had to come out later and sort of dispel that. And, of course, a couple of years later, they did a massive tour, um, you know, the biggest tour of their career. But, um, I mean, do you remember any of that with R.E.M.? I mean, I, I, re- I remember as a kid, like, that was a big thing. You know, I don't remember exactly concentrating on that fact. I don't remember worrying them. That might be that I was already in the music business, and knew people who knew them, and I hadn't heard, I didn't know them, um, but I don't think, I remember reading about some of that stuff, but I don't think I had huge ownership of it. The other, of, of like, whether Michael was okay or not, I, I always thought it was more about losing friends right. um, to uh, all sorts of different things, including uh, AIDS, um, and just uh, perhaps being the you know, one who, who survived somehow. Yeah. Also, the record came out I, in October of '92. I got I got married in April of '92, mm. so it was just a, a big r- record um, for my wife and me. We would take long drives when we were first married and and listen to our favorite records. That was a huge part of our. It still is a huge part of our relationship. Was we're people who love to to, to just get in the car. You know, back then, load up the CDs and go listen to music. And we would take just 
uh, we would drive from New York City to upstate New York all the time, just listening to that album over and over again. And so, it, it, it and as you know, when when records are a huge part of seminal events in your life, they they become this this intermingling happens of the thematics that they were singing about and the stuff that we were thinking about as we were embarking on that part of our lives together. Yeah, I mean, I remember buying this record when my family was visiting my brother. He went to Cornell University, so we were in Ithaca for the first time, and I bought this record at a record store there. Um, and I didn't have a CD player with me, so I had to wait a couple of days to listen to it. So I just remember staring at the cover for a long time and like trying to imagine what this album would sound like. So that, that was sort of an incredible thing. Um, you know, one thing, one thing that we should talk about, and I think it's, it, it's not as clear today because everything is parsed in the way it, it is, but REM were a sort of an unalloyed force for good back then. Right. It's, any music fan, whether they liked R.E.M.'s music or not, would have said they were a force for kind of everything that was good about what music could do and be. You know, they were, in, in all the ways, um, attuned to the lives of the people who listened to their records. They were attuned to the lives of the less fortunate. They were about a sense of community. And all that stuff's on the record, too, I think. It's a, a record that really enlists you with them. What you, 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 what you were getting at about Stipe um, unmasking himself is that it, it, it felt like he was letting us all the way into his deepest emotions, if not exactly his thoughts, because some of the lyrics are still inscrutable. But it did feel like he was... Um, opening himself up and inviting us in, but I always thought in service of making our lives a little bit better and right. the world a little bit better. It really seemed like when they would come to a town, they'd want to leave that town a little better than it was before they got there. And and I think that was a giant part of their ethos and a giant part of what we as REM fans were buying into. Yeah, I mean, I... I remember reading a review at the time where someone, I think it was in Entertainment Weekly, they compared Everybody Hurts to Bridge Over Troubled Water, like a song, like a, like a song that big, like a, a classic rock anthem that is this reassuring song that people latch on to. And I've always remembered that whenever I listen to that song. I think it's true of the entire record, too, that there's an openness to it that it is almost like, it felt like sort of like a consciously classic rock record in the early 90s that was different from what else was going on at the time. Like, it feels to me more like that than it does an alternative rock record that came out in 1992. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting because you, you touched on something I wanted to talk to you about, which is R.E.M.'s legacy, which to me has changed in the time since the 90s. Because I, when I was coming up as a music fan, like, R.E.M. was one of those bands that you had to like. You know that you had to listen to because they were so respected and they were looked at as being sort of a leading light in music at the time, and right. and and that was true. I think definitely up through up through Automatic for the People, which, you know, that record was so different from what was going on at the time. You can definitely hear the influence that that had on Kurt Cobain on the you know the Unplugged record that he made and the record that he wanted to make, had he not died. And of course, 
Automatic for the People was the record that he was playing when he committed suicide, which is sort of an amazing thing. Um, but now when I talk to people, like younger people, you know, they talk about the Smiths, they talk about the Pixies, they talk about the replacements, but like they don't talk about R.E.M. as much. And I'm wondering, like, if you have any thoughts on that. You're talking to the wrong young people. Well, I guess so. <laughs> well, okay, let me, let me rephrase that then. Why do you think R.E.M. should be in that company or maybe even be bigger than those, those people in retrospect? Well, I, um, I wrote a piece this year about R.E.M. versus the Smiths, uh, which I'm going to get the link because I'll say it. Um, and, uh, I mean, to me, look, the Smiths are great. But uh, I just never cared. And I don't agree. Look, Johnny Marr, I guess, is cool. Look, R.E.M. kept going, you know. R.E.M. kept going and making records, I think, long after the time when they were making their best records. And so I think, does that ding their legacy in the short term? Maybe. But I, for me, long term, they changed music. They put alternative music on the map. And I would put their best ten records against anybody's best ten records. I put their best seven records against anybody's best seven um, and, uh, you know, you're a historian in a certain way of this stuff and you write about it. I'm leading much more from a place of emotional reaction to the music. And I find those albums still incredibly alive. Like I said, I think Accelerate's a great record. I think they made a bunch of records that weren't this strong. Uh, and I don't know why that is or what the reason, you know, other than Bill Barry leaving and, and Peter, recently I had the opportunity to talk to Peter Buck. He uh, was on along with uh, uh, his partner in the new band, um, Corinne Tucker. They were filthy friends, that, that band. They were on my podcast. It'll, it'll be out soon. And Buck said that Automatic for the People was the last record that he felt like didn't take too long. He acknowledged it took time because you know he wanted to work more quickly. And I said, but Automatic is arguably your best record. And he goes, yeah, that took about as long as something should take uh, and still feel like you're making something creative together with a spark. And I think he felt that after that, it, the process got too labored, probably up until Accelerate. Right. I mean, like, do you play REM records for your kids? And I mean, my kids love REM, love, love, love REM. So, like, was yeah. that like something you you turned them on to, like, when they were really young? You know, I never played. Uh, this is just a bit of parenting advice. If you're out there, I have a 21 year old and a 17 year old. They grew up listening to the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and REM and Bob Dylan and Bruce and never Barney and never <laughs> uh, any of that other stuff. Never Rothy, and they they've done just fine. Right. So, but yes, they would put on Perfect Circle tomorrow, and it's like they're, I mean, you know, that's still, that comes on in the car, everybody's singing along to it. See, like, I, you mentioned how, you know, REM was around for a long time, and maybe they made some records that weren't that great. I mean, the thing with REM is that I think you can make a case for sure that they made eight very good to great albums in a row. And I would say, I would go up to 10 or 11, personally. I think yeah. up through up is like, I think through the 90s, I think they continued to make very good to great records. Um, I, I, do think I, that, I do think that there's something that happens maybe when, you know, whoever decides things are cool decides these things, that if you were on the radio a lot or you were sort sure. of like on MTV a lot, that that detracts from maybe sure. your maybe credibility. They came, maybe they became too big. Um, which is weird because, again, I think at the time... The thing with R.E.M. that was so inspirational 
is that they got a little bit more popular with each record. And they would, you know, it was like from Murmur up through Automatic for the people and even into Monster, you know, it's like, okay, now they're playing clubs, now they're playing theaters, now they're playing arenas, now they're playing stadiums. And they would change along the way. And there was this sort of ladder thing that they were climbing that I think is really hard to even imagine a band doing now because that ladder doesn't exist. But um, at the time, it was always like inspirational. Oh, REM won a Grammy. That's great. Yeah, that's right. You felt like you were enlisted and part of it. You know, they had that B-side bandwagon, which had that lyric, come on aboard, I promise you won't hurt the horse. We'll feed him well. Um, what's the Dave Jimmer? We'll feed him well. We'll feed him well. So I can't remember the second part of it because it was a murmured Michael Stipe song. But they were aware of it, right? Come on aboard. I promise you, you won't hurt the horse. And uh, they were the horse. And so they were aware of trying of, of, of not trying to break this thing that was very special. And I don't think they did break it. I think that Bill Berry leaving changed something, but I don't think that they ever broke it. And I, I take a longer view. I think that, that uh, Out of Time, Automatic for the People, and the first four records will, Ben Green and Document 2, man, will be records that people are playing for a really long time. And I, I, if R.E.M. got back together tomorrow, they would sell out an arena tour. I, do you not think so? I'm, I'm pretty sure they'd sell an arena tour out. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 th- I mean, it depends on how extensive it was, I guess, but I could definitely see them doing that. I, 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 it'd be hard for me to imagine them not being able to do that. Yeah. I mean, so I, I still think they are, look, they're not U2. Uh, U2 had a firmer a grasp on the commercial, I think. And I think REM always had a much more complicated relationship with commercial success. Um, and I made much more insular albums. Even their biggest albums were much more insular other than those couple of tracks. Right. Uh, you know, other than Shiny Happy People or whatever, they were a much more insular group and cool. than, than you too. And I think Automatic for the People is when they hit the sweet spot of, of exactly as insular as they needed to be for us, the fans, and as outward-looking as they needed to be to enlist a whole lot more fans. Well, and, and this knocked me out. I mean, I was researching the record. I mean, Automatic for the People sold 18 million copies worldwide, which blows my mind that a record as obsessed with yeah. death and mortality and is as mid-tempo as well, this record is. I mean, there's, yeah, there's... but between Mike Mills and Michael Stipe and Peter Buck, I mean, those melodies, uh, you know, a great melody sung by a beautiful singer really, you, I think, really makes up for the fact that the guy's singing about that. Right. Hey, man, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting soon called to set here. So um, I think I'm going to have to wrap up soon. Okay. Well, before you go, just one last question. So, Night Swimming is your favorite, would you say? Is that the, is that, is that the, the Night top Swimming track? and Sweetness Follows are probably my favorite two songs on the record, and Try Not to Breathe. What's yours? Yeah, you know, it's weirdly the same. I would say Sweetness Follows is maybe my favorite song, and then, you know, that in addition to the final three are like the sweet spot for me on that record, uh, the one yeah, that I was turned to. Yeah, and I'd say to someone listening who, who doesn't know the record, like whatever your preconceptions are about Michael Stipe as a public figure now, and, and for me as an R.E.M. fan, I love who Michael Stipe is as a public figure now. I think he stayed so true to everything that he promised us he'd be. And I guess that, to me, is the thing, that often a band, when they become successful, it's because they've betrayed something fundamental about who they were. But R.E.M. never did that. R.E.M. stayed exactly who they promised us they'd be if we followed. If we went along, they weren't going to... 
they were going to continue to dig as deep as they could to make music for all of us. And if more people decided they loved it, that would be fine, but they would still be singing to us. And I feel like Automatic for the People is the culmination of that. And um, on Monster, some, it changed a little bit. On Monster, uh, I think that the world intruded in a, in a way, um, the music scene intruded in a way, but up through Automatic for the People, uh, I think this was a band playing for a community that they were a part of and that they were leading. And it, uh, and for that reason, I think it's, it's them at their highest, most elevated state. I think on that note, Brian, I'll let you go. I know you got to shoot some more billions. So thank you so much, man. I do. And, and thanks, man. And uh, thanks for writing about our show too. Uh, I always, uh, am, am really interested in what, what you're going to have to say. So this is fun. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. All right. That was me and Brian Koppelman talking about automatic for the people. Um, I'm here with the celebration rock producer, Derek Madden. Uh, I want to pick up something that I brought up with Brian that he didn't really know how to answer, but I I think it's an intriguing thing with REM, which is the matter of REM's legacy. Uh, Because I do find that when I talk to music fans who were maybe born in the nineties, that they tend to either not know REM or they don't hold REM in high esteem. Whereas you know, they might, you know, if they do listen to 80s rock, they like the Smiths, maybe the Pixies, the Replacements, like Sonic Youth. Um, it seems like those bands have like a cooler reputation, but R.E.M. doesn't. Yeah, this is like an enduring mystery to me. Yeah. You know. Uh, like what happened to their rep? Yeah, like I think we're all around the same age as Koppelman. Well, he's older than us. Oh, he's he's, like, a he's like in his 50s. Gotcha. Okay, so if you live, yeah. if you live through that time, like this is very clear. Like the defining college rock band of the '80s was REM. Yeah, like when right? I first, when I I was when I was getting into music as like a ten or eleven year old, like in the late '80s, like REM was probably the most respected band. Yeah, and, uh, on the planet. And then they graduated right to this like sort of commercial success, where then they were in the realm of like the other letter bands, like the U2s and the NXSs of you <laughs> right. know, the world, where they were like legitimate pop stars. So they were bigger than L7 though. Yes. <laughs> L7 was like less popular Wait, as a letter sure. band. But okay. yeah, yeah, they weren't as MXPX. popular as U2. They were more popular than L7. But like they were in the conversation with U2. I mean, you think about the the deal that they signed with Warner um you know, which was like this like massive massive, I don't remember the exact number at the time, but it was like a jaw-dropping multi-million dollar multi-album deal. I think it was like 90 million dollars or yeah. something like that. Um, like, I mean, they were a commercial force. So it's just, it's weird that, you know, because I lived through the eighties and no one listened to the Smiths in the eighties. Right. You know, I mean, obviously some people did, but like, that was a, like an exotic thing. And I do think that, uh, over time, the stature of that band has grown somehow, um, while the stature of REM has diminished. And I, I don't totally understand it. Yeah. I mean, I think the most common theories would be, you know, one, that they continued for a long time after they peaked commercially. And, you know, Bill Berry leaves the band in like 97, 98. And then there's like another 13 years and like maybe four or five records after that. Um, So if you came to music, maybe in the 2000s, like you were born in the 90s and you started caring about music in the 2000s, like REM was not at their peak and they weren't at their coolest at that point. So, you know, I've heard that theory bandied about. There's also the fact that they were more popular than, like, say, the Smiths. So 
there's a lot more, I guess, you know, there's more music videos, there's more promotional photos where, you know, REM is wearing like multicolored jackets yeah. and like weird hats and uh, they have bad haircuts and they don't look very cool, you know? Uh, so people maybe look at that as opposed to the early days when they were on IRS and they had, you know, they were an indie rock band basically like through their first four or five records. Um, I mean, I personally, I love nineties REM. So like, I'm not, when I say that I'm not knocking REM, but I'm just trying to understand the perception of someone who didn't grow up with this band or is coming to them later. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I heard someone once liken them to like Billy Joel. Yeah. I've well, heard I, that, which like just blew my mind. And I, you know, and again, Billy Joel, I'll defend Billy Joel, but Billy Joel being sort of the epitome of like a mainstream male pop star and then R.E.M., you know, being lumped in with that, it just seems inconceivable to me. I, I think maybe that's part of it. I think bands sometimes, you know, when you when you look back at a legacy, particularly for people who weren't there, the band can sort of get reduced to their hits. And, and I do think there is sort of a pattern of R.E.M. kind of has some of these hit songs that were really earnest in a way that the band wasn't. So like if you know R.E.M. through the prism of Everybody Hurts and Shiny Happy People or, you know, like maybe you don't get the irony and stand or, you know, even Losing My Religion. Like if those are the songs you know are Man on the Moon, like I, I guess I could see how you might think of them in, in some sort of Billy Joel-esque way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I understand it. It's just, it still just blows my mind that yeah, really that's what they're perceived as. Like you pulled some Nielsen radio information about R.E.M. just to kind of get an idea of like what songs of theirs still get played on the radio. And of course, Losing My Religion is the top song. Um, and we were looking at some of the stations that they get played on and like, you know, like national, light FM stations, light FM stations yeah. and adult <laughs> contemporary stations. Yeah. Like next to, I guess, the Billy Joels and, you know, Phil Collins and stuff like that. And then you have the one I love is second, but it's significantly less than losing my religion. And then it's the end of the world as we know it. Man on the moon, of course, that's a song from automatic for the people and then stand. And then after that, it's like kind of insignificant numbers of plays for other songs. Like we, I mean like, you know, like the early kind of cool eighties period, you know, where radio free Europe, South central yeah. rain, um, you know, Driver 8, songs like that, that I think maybe if younger music fans were more familiar with those, you know, maybe they'd be more cachet with R.E.M., like the, the sort of cooler, more underground R.E.M. records. Yeah, those are gone from radio. Yeah, completely. they're gone. Um, they're not really referenced anywhere. You don't hear them being brought up in TV shows or movies. Um, yeah, it just blows my mind. I... Again, like when I talk to younger people, like people who are in their 20s or even teens, like they're talking about R.E.M. as being a band that their parents played for them. Yeah. And maybe they like them for that reason because they, they heard it from their parents, but like they're not hearing it elsewhere. They're not really talked about in the music press anymore. Like, like Rolling Stone just did a list. I think Rob Sheffield did it. He ranked every Smith song, you know, ever. And... uh like they're not doing that kind of stuff for REM. I feel like no, and 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 like that's that's the thing is it's like if you were around at the time, like it seems sort of inconceivable that this because this was the gold standard for like 
underground rock for a time and then mainstream alternative rock for a time when mainstream alternative rock was really big. I mean, like yeah. R.E.M. was peaking in the early 90s and like, you know, Kurt, Kurt Cobain and Tom York looked to Michael Stipe as this kind of like, uh, you know, senior figure and, uh, you know, maybe that's part of it. Like maybe some a lot of the bands that they've influenced, I feel like, are older now, like, you know, bands like the National or Modest Mouse, like, or, you know, they've sort of moved up into that sort of, you know, dad rock sort of yeah. phase. And I, I guess a lot of new bands that have come up don't really have that REM influence where maybe the Smiths is more lasting. Well, you mentioned Radiohead and Radiohead has been around now for, you know, 25 years. I mean, they're, uh, you know, they were just nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So they've been around and I feel like Radiohead still has cachet you know they can play they can headline coachella and it makes sense and uh the youngs care about them in a way but they are you know profoundly influenced by rem um you know michael stipe in particular with him and tom york um had a really big relationship at a pivotal time in radiohead's career you could almost maybe say that if not for michael stipe that tom york might have like gone crazy and broken up the band after okay computer or something right. um but when we talk about great 90s records i don't get the sense that automatic for the people really gets its due as like a masterpiece like when like when okay computer came out you know we did an episode on it but there were tons of think pieces on it and it was in pitchfork did like a huge retrospective on you know they did a series of stories about okay computer um and I don't, you know, when the 20th anniversary of Automatic for the People was, you know, when that happened, it didn't happen then and it didn't happen now for the 25th anniversary. Um, Those records that, are what, five years apart? Five I mean, years they apart. They seem like a million years seems apart. Seems like a million years <laughs> apart. Like, yeah, it, it does seem like a different era, but it's not really that different. No. Um, and, you know, if you look at Radiohead as being a band, like I love Radiohead because they shake it up and they don't just make the same record over and over again. They learned that from R.E.M. R.E.M. was like a pivotal band and a pivotal influence in that regard. And Automatic for the People being an album that totally went against the grain of its time and went against the grain of other R.E.M. records even. Um, although I guess because that record is so popular along with Out, Out of Time, um, it does maybe form their personality in the mainstream. I mean, I think people just perceive them now as this sort of folky, laid back, a lot of mid-tempo songs, yeah. you know, uh, you know. Whereas they were more of a rock and roll band before and even after that, you know, Monster coming after Automatic with the People. Uh, so I don't. I mean, are we just two old guys complaining about the kids here? <laughs> I, I don't know. Are we just lecturing kids? Like you should listen to REM. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm doing, these, can, but they should. Right? Can I just say you should listen to REM? And I think we made this, the, uh, you know, a great point. Uh, at, at some point <laughs> about the incredible run of albums, like the run uh, from Murmur, which was the debut in 83, uh, all the way up to me, to Monster. Some, I think you included New, new Adventures in Hi-Fi. Yeah, run. I even include Up. Yeah. I love Up. I, I would say through the 80s and 90s, they did not make yeah. a bad record. But even if you just cap it off at and Monster or Automatic for the People, yeah. like a lot of people would cap it at Automatic for the People, but that I think that's eight records. Yeah. And it's a nine-year run. It's a span of eight records from 83 to 92. 
that show me another band that has that kind of run. And I would say, like, like if you're a kid and you're listening to this and you think we're full of crap and, like, you like the Smiths, go go listen to that run of records and put it up against the, the Smiths' entire catalog. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to knock the Smiths, but the Smiths have, like, eight greatest hits records, you know, where they just repackage the same songs. In terms of, like, great albums, they didn't make that many albums and they didn't make that many great albums. And neither did the Pixies. You know, Pixies made you know Pixies made some great records, but they were not as many. Um, yeah. You know, all the bands in that you know that our band could be your life book, like is Sonic Youth in that book. I think they're in I that book. So Sonic Youth take them out. I mean, they they obviously have a long storied career. Um, but you know, or, or, the, or the replacements. Like I love the replacements yeah. so much, <laughs> but like their catalog is not as good as REMs. Right. I'll say it right now. REM is better than just about all those bands that we've mentioned. I think so. I mean, to me, I think REM is on the short, short list of the greatest American rock bands of all time. Like I would put them in my top five, if not my top four or so. Um, But I feel like when I say that, (laughs) you know, people who are younger than me look at me like I'm insane. Yeah. You know, they don't understand it. Um, And I, I mean, you know, I hope that there's a revival at some point that, uh, People go back and, and also look at Michael Stipe too as being, you know, you know, we talk now, there's, there's much more cultural awareness about LGBTQ issues and Michael Stipe was a pioneering rock star in that regard, you know, as far as, you know, and I think maybe framing REM in that sense might change some minds um, because they aren't really thought of like that. I don't think necessarily as like a crusading band um, as like a great, like queer rock band. Although I think, they should be. I think Michael Stipe. Um, and again, uh, if we're going to do the Smiths REM comparison, Michael Stipe to me destroys Morrissey, especially Morrissey now who's devolved into this sort of like cranky bigot guy. Right. <laughs> um, whereas Michael Stipe, um, I mean, he, you know, he's not as visible anymore, but when you see him in interviews, I talked to him myself three years ago. He was great. He's awesome. Yeah, now um, he's like fun, eccentric David Letterman beard. Right, style. and he's he's funny, and he's got a great. He's really smart. He's got a great perspective. I've heard you know he's performed here and there, not very much, but like when he has performed, his voice still sounds great. I'm hoping that he does launch some sort of solo career because I feel like out of all the members of REM, he has the best shot at actually making some kind of like bigger impression. Like it seems like Peter Buck and Mike Mills aren't really interested in being, you know, sort of in a mainstream context anymore, which is, you know, more power to them. Um, But I think it would be helpful maybe to REM's legacy if you had Michael Stipe out there making music and just to remind people like, oh yeah, this guy's amazing. He's an amazing singer. He's a great lyricist. Um, And we've taken him for granted. Let's not do that anymore, you know? But there really was something singular about the chemistry of those four guys together. Yeah. And you really feel that each of them sort of brought something to the table in their own right. And at least I sort of think that that's why when when Bill, who seemingly would be the least important member, right, the drummer, when Bill left the band, like everything just sort of went a little bit off kilter after that. Yeah. And And I I think, you know, I think they make good records after that. I like their last two records quite a bit. Um, but I think it changed the, the nature of the band. And I think it also changed people's perceptions of the band. I think that, um, 
one of the lovable things about REM was that they were this sort of four-headed monster. And it did seem like, you know, all the members were, were essential. So like when one guy fell away and they kept going, I mean, I would say this was, this was even true for me for a long time. It, you know, it just didn't feel the same. It felt kind of cheap yeah. in a way that they did it, which I think was unfair of people to say, like looking back, I regret that I reacted that way. Well, they um, set that up some of the, some themselves though. Cause I think that they had pretty publicly said that if anyone ever left, they weren't going to keep going. Yeah. So, uh, and then they did. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's their right that, you right. know, they did it and they should be able to do it for as long as they want. Um, but yes, REM, listen to REM young people. What's wrong with you? Listen to, <laughs> listen to automatic for the people. If that, if that doesn't cut it for you, Put on Life Search Pageant. I'm a Life Search Pageant guy. That's my, that's my album. Put on Reckoning. I mean, those are great records. I mean, there's REM has a big enough catalog and enough diversity in their catalog where if you listen to one record and it's not your thing, there are other eras to delve into. It's not just the same thing over and over again. So you might not like this record, but you might like this record. You might like Fables of the Reconstruction. You might like Document or Green, you know. Um, or Monster. But this, yeah. is, this is a serious band. This is a real band. This is a great you know, band that made a lot of contributions and we should not take them for granted. Yeah. So, like I just don't want to see them forgotten. Yeah. I'm, I'm going on like, you can do whatever you want, but I'm going on a big REM listening jaunt as soon as we're done with this. Yeah. So. Me too, man. Um, All right. Have we waved our fingers enough? <laughs> at, <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> at the kids. All right. Okay. Well, this, this was a good episode uh, about automatic for the people. Again, thanks to Brian and thank you, Derek. Uh, for talking about this masterpiece of an album and this great band. Um, I say this every week and I mean it. It's important for me to say we would not have a podcast if not for all of you listening out there. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for talking about us. Thanks for spreading the word. Without you, uh, I'd be talking to myself and that'd be crazy. So thanks for, thanks for giving me a podcast. Thanks for giving me a, an illustrious podcast career, listeners. Um, Guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back with more Celebration Rock next week.